You are listening to Gung Ho Ego, and I'm your host, Maya Lilly. Please remember to give us a rating on iTunes, because the more you rate and like us, the more people will know about our show. Jason Funk is my guest today, a leading climate scientist that also has the best name ever. He holds a PhD from Stanford in Environment and Resources and currently works with UCS, the Union of Concerned Scientists. I've been following UCS forever, and Jason basically works creatively with scientists, policymakers, and stakeholders to find solutions to the intensifying climate problem. UCS was founded in 1969 at MIT, and it basically combines the knowledge and influence of the scientists scientific community with the passion of concerned citizens to help with the climate crisis. So Jason, it is extremely serendipitous to be talking to you today as SoCal is under a severe thunderstorm warning today and it rained all night. So my first cheesiest question I can ask a climate scientist is, what's the weather like where you are? (laughs) I'm in Chicago. It's a beautiful day here. Uh, It's sunny and it's almost 60 degrees. Uh, it was supposed to be raining today, but right now it's uh, it's gorgeous out. How are you doing? I hear that you just had a new baby. Yeah, um, doing pretty well. She's five months old today, and uh, I also have a son who's three years old, so we have our hands full on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, I bet. So I, I have more questions for you than I had for Captain Paul Watson of Sea Shepherd. <laughs> so I, I'm going to try my best not to scream out, I want to know everything during the interview. What led you into a career working in climate? What was your aha moment? Um, I don't know if I had an aha moment specifically. Um, I got interested, though, when I was like, sort of the first quarter of my freshman year of college. Uh, I took this class. It was really broadly looking at environmental issues. I had suspected that I wanted my career to go in that direction. Um, but when we covered the climate issue, I was just kind of like, wow, this is a really huge deal. Uh, It doesn't seem like we're doing a good job addressing it. And it just seemed like such a problem that you could really dig into, uh, and there were so many different facets, and the solutions needed to be, you know, found right away. Uh, And it just appealed to me, and I was like, well, I think this is what I want to tackle. And are you from Chicago originally? No, I'm from Ohio. I'm from a small city uh, near Columbus, Ohio. One of the things that sort of evolved over my career was um, where I grew up, there's kind of a diverse landscape. Uh, And there's a lot of farming. There's also a lot of forests nearby. Uh, It's right on the cusp of the Appalachians. Um, And so I sort of joke with people that I grew up on the border between redneck and hillbilly. Uh, (laughs) A lot of farming and a lot of sort of foothills of the Appalachians, uh, but the, the result was that there's this really rich landscape there, uh, and I started really getting into the idea that what we do with the landscape is affected by climate, but can also affect the climate, uh, and I thought that was an interesting bunch of questions to start diving into, and now those questions have kind of taken me all around the world, and I spent a lot of time in Uh, New Zealand in particular, focused on the same types of issues. Well, not to out your age here, but I'm assuming that was probably around the 90s that you were in Ohio. And, you know, I'm assuming that that was before, you know, climate was really a part of the mainstream conversation. It was part of the mainstream conversation among scientists. Uh, That's, I mean, we've had a pretty good handle on what to expect uh, since that time. Uh, It just hasn't been part of the mainstream dialogue in terms of news media and other things. And why, why do you think that is? Have you seen a difference since when you first started studying it? Yeah, I think most recently there's been a real uptick in interest. Uh, and I think the scientific community at the time was raising all kinds of alarm bells, was saying, you know, we really need to start tackling this. I think the difference has been driven by the fact that people are actually seeing the impacts now. Uh, it's no longer the product of a climate model or, um, you know, a story that's being described by a scientist about the future. Uh, people are really seeing these things happening. And there's, well, people can still try to deny it, but I really think there's no place left for denial in the conversation. And they're ready to move on. And I think it's, you know, people are interested in figuring out, well, what is the solution to this? How bad is it going to be? How can we avoid uh, the worst of these impacts? Right. No room for denial unless you're under the, the paycheck of big oil, yeah? <laughs> and even there, we're seeing some, some cracks emerging. Oh, good to hear. 
So did you, did you feel like you, um, were understood in your community when you first started this, uh, climate track? Not necessarily. Uh, I mean, starting with my, my community, you know, my immediate family, uh, the more I went into this, they were kind of like, what's this all about? Um, I think that has, I mean, I, I think I have a different background than most people who enter science. Um, my parents are both sort of working class people with, uh, they, neither one of them finished a college degree. Um, most of my extended family, uh, there aren't too many advanced degrees to be found there. Uh, so I think they just didn't quite get where I was coming from or, or, uh, in their day-to-day lives, they couldn't quite see the importance of what this is all about. So, in other words, you're used to explaining it to people. <laughs> well, yeah, I'd always use the grandma test. If I could explain it to my grandma in a way she could understand, um, then I think I would be doing okay with you know, sort of a lay person on the street. Well, as someone who works in media, I feel like I'm the the conversation's always twofold for me. It's explaining and then persuading. Um, when you explain to your grandma, do you feel like she gets it, but then is moved to take action? And do you f- do you try to frame it in the persuasion sec- second part of that? Um, less of the latter. I think that uh, I mean I, I'm a scientist, and uh, most scientists sort of feel like if people understand the facts, then the facts kind of speak for themselves. You can make clear the implications of what's happening or where it might lead. Uh, then I think people naturally respond to be motivated to do something about it. So it's, in my, in my view, requires a little less persuasion, uh, but maybe some indication, like I think people need some guidance about what's an appropriate response, what's actually helpful versus uh, just kind of a feel-good thing. Um, so those are the kinds of things that I don't feel like I'm all that great as a persuader, but uh, I think I try to make an effort to explain these phenomena clearly and then help people find ways to respond to them effectively. Nice answer. So um, I'll ask you about that a little bit later in terms of climate change being such a big um, issue that people don't know how to take action about any one small thing. But, um, but first, you worked for the Environmental Defense Fund, and now you work for the Union of Concerned Scientists. And I was just curious like, how you thought the two organizations were different and why you decided to work for UCS. Yeah, they're both great organizations, and uh, most of the reasons were sort of personal, just in terms of fit. I had to still work with a lot of people over at EDF, and I was working with people at UCS before I, I changed organizations. Um, so I think there's a slightly different type of emphasis at the organization, uh, and I just thought that UCS would be a little bit more of a, a better fit for me and the things that I wanted to do. What is your job on the daily? What do you do at UCS? Uh, like if, if you could just walk us through a, a normal day for you. Yeah, it changes day to day. Um, there are some times when there's very intense activity, like around the recent climate conference in Paris. Uh, there are other times when it's more research focused. And so it's going into the academic literature, reading a lot of papers, pulling it together, getting a handle on what we understand about things that are happening now. Um, and a lot of it is then my background kind of crosses a a few different disciplines. So my job as I see it is to take what we know in the scientific community, and that includes social sciences, try to translate it into something that can be meaningful uh, in the policy arena. It can be meaningful to the everyday person uh, to help them understand, like I said, you know, what are the implications of what we're seeing around us right now? What is, what are our chances uh, and what are the most effective ways to address these problems, what are the meaningful actions we could take? So from a scientific perspective, trying to identify those and then articulate what's sort of the path forward uh, in that respect. So so your experience at COP21, what was your experience like? It was pretty pretty remarkable. Uh, this was, so I think this was my eighth COP, uh, if I counted them correctly. This one was really well organized and well coordinated. And the result, it was like the easiest result. It was almost um, an anticlimax because I've been to several cops where it was just very contentious and there were these issues that people just blocked the progress in the negotiations at a certain point. Uh, and this one just felt like every day you showed up and we, we walked forward together and made progress and 
there were no real obstacles that came up that were insurmountable. My job there was to be an advisor on a country delegation, so I got to see uh, at a very sort of technical level what was going on behind the scenes, to be able to sit in the negotiating rooms, to see the text as it was being worked on by negotiators in real time. So that's, uh, that's a really interesting perspective and, and gives me a huge amount of respect for the work that those technical folks are doing day in and day out. You also sort of get this sense of uh, the political level that's happening. And it was, you know, you just sort of feel like, wow, we're, we're part of this much bigger thing. And here are all these world leaders right at the beginning of the, of the session talking about the importance of this for their country. And I think that it was something we hadn't seen in the past and really set a productive tone for, for the whole meeting. There are many facets to the, the UNFCCC process. Uh, and I'll try, I just tried to give you a little bit of a window into it. Uh, but every time I go to a cop, it's like peeling back another layer of the onion and you sort of get to see something new on the inside you hadn't seen before. So that's been a, a really cool experience. Interesting. Interesting. You know, most of the articles after COP21 were like, it's a success, but how are we going to face the challenge where things are nationally determined and each country has to set their own standards? Um, did you walk away feeling like, okay, great, we got somewhere? Or did you walk away feeling like we got somewhere, but what is next? What do we do? I think I came away with the feeling that we had closed a chapter uh, that had been causing some problems for a long time, really since Kyoto and even before that, uh, where we had this division between developed and developing countries that was there for good reasons but wasn't, wasn't productive anymore. It was uh, being used in a, as an excuse to support inaction in, in various ways. Uh, and so to be able to close that chapter in Paris was more about getting getting past something that had been difficult and not productive and opening the door to a space that could be more productive. But by no means do I think that Paris is sort of the end of the story or like, okay, now everything's free and clear for us to um, solve this problem. We don't need to worry about it anymore. It's actually the beginning of a brand new chapter that's going to have a whole bunch of different types of contentious and difficult obstacles that we haven't encountered yet. But at least we've closed the door on some of the ones that were the most difficult of the past chapter. Uh, so I think it's an exciting time because it is a little bit of the space where this is brand new. Uh, I also think it's, it's good that we do have the experience of knowing over the past many years of negotiations how to get past some of these things. We have this experience uh, collectively about working through complicated issues. Uh, so even though it's kind of the beginning of a chapter, it's we're, we're well into the book, if I can continue the metaphor, uh, and we've got a lot of the story behind us. So um, looking ahead, I think it's we have both the benefit of experience and also the chance to move past some thorny issues and, and into a more productive space. So for my listeners who perhaps haven't followed the UN climate uh, summits, uh, what he's talking about is that a lot of developing con countries with a smaller carbon footprint didn't want to take the responsibility of the emissions for the developed countries who were emitting so much more. Um, how, how briefly, Jason, do you feel like that got resolved, like in a nutshell, in layman's terms? Yeah, it got resolved by this, um, what people call a bottom-up approach, uh, and to be able to say to countries, well, okay, uh, you can take responsibility for as much of this as you feel is appropriate, uh, and we're all going to come together, we're going to sort of look at what, you, what you're putting forward. That was really important because there was a separate sort of thread of discussion uh, in various circles about how you would make a calculation or a global uh, uh, estimate of what each country should be doing. And that just didn't seem like it was going to fly politically. It didn't seem to really be fair necessarily. It would have violated the principles of sovereignty in, in international negotiations. The alternative to that was to say, okay, well, you come forward yourself, country X, and tell us what you think is the right thing to do with your own efforts. And some of those efforts involve helping other countries to do certain things like reduce their deforestation uh, or to invest in clean development elsewhere. But by and large, it was kind of like, okay, well, we're going to let this be a bottom-up process. Coupled to that, really importantly, is the fact that um, there's something that we all come together periodically 
uh, look at what's happening globally and say, okay, is this enough? Are the collective efforts of these countries enough? And if not, we need to find ways to do more everywhere. So that those two components together, the sort of bottom-up and then this top-down assessment process, felt like were really critical components to making this agreement work. Beautiful. Thank you. So, so it kind of sounds like more non-hierarchical uh, work on that end. I think so. What do you mean by non-hierarchical? Um, I've just worked with organizations in the past where instead of like uh, a couple of people like a CEO or a founder telling everybody else what to do, that, you know, the solutions come from within the, you know, worker group. People are creating their own uh, understanding of the solution for the problem rather than right. being told how to, how to solve the problem. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, one of the main obstacles was this risk that uh, somebody's going to, some other country's going to undercut the efforts. So in the U.S. case, uh, there was always this fear that, well, okay, if we implement some sort of stringent controls on uh, climate emissions, greenhouse gas emissions, uh, and some other country will just use really loose standards and they will steal away, you know, our economic advantages. They'll steal our jobs or um, take advantage of looser restrictions. Now we have, in the Paris Agreement, basically every country saying, well, we're going to do something. Uh, and there's a, a chance to work to hold, hold each other accountable to do the right kinds of things and to avoid that outcome of just undermining others' efforts by stealing away their economic advantages. That's not to say that that's a guaranteed outcome, but I think uh, the the conversation has moved past that into something where we do have the ability to look over the shoulders of other folks a little bit more and to be able to ensure that they aren't doing things that deliberately undermine um, better environmental efforts in other countries. Mm. So um, I work in, in uh, films and TV and particularly documentaries, and I was just talking to somebody who worked on The Corporation, the documentary. And um, that's really what inspires this next question. You know, so many people are jaded by the lack of separation between corporation and state, you know, uh, or what a perceived lack of separation. So big oil, you know, influencing policy, for example. And I like how you said that there are cracks showing. What are those cracks and how are we going to work to create these policies, you know, that are nationally determined if so many times the very people that impact policy have it in their monetary interest not to act on climate change? This is a really big question. It's pretty much at the fringes of my expertise, but I can tell a little bit about, from my perspective, what it looks like. I think uh, we shouldn't put the whole private sector all in the same basket, even though historically on this issue, there was an effort to try to present a united front from the private sector that said, no, we're not going to do anything about climate change uh, because, you know, we're trying to make profits here and any type of environmental regulations or restrictions just uh, undercut our efforts to make profits. So that's sort of the storyline. And, and for many years, it was kind of everybody kind of showed up in the private sector and, and towed that line. Now the cracks that I'm talking about are that uh, there's been some changes in recent years uh, where many companies have started to recognize but that's not actually in their business interest to keep towing that line. Um, there are a number that are, their business model is built around sustainability. They need climate change mitigation to be effective. Uh, they will be more successful in a world where climate change is reduced than they will be in a world where it's allowed to proceed um, unabated. Uh, so that's one group. There's another group that uh, includes insurance companies, for example, where they realize that Climate change is a threat to their current business model, and um, they may not be able to sustain their business, which isn't necessarily about sustainability. It's just about doing what they've been doing for decades. Uh, but the climate change is going to damage their ability to continue to do that kind of business. And then I think just in terms of the sort of corporate social responsibility, um, everyday Main Street companies are realizing that their consumers care about these issues much more and that they can attract consumers and do more business if they show that they're making efforts uh, on all types of environmental issues, climate change being one of them. So I think those shifts are starting to um, break apart what was a more unified front in the past around climate issues 
And the private sector is starting to realize, at least segments of it are starting to realize that, oh, geez, we can actually do much better if we get on board with this issue. And when I go to many conferences or um, the international negotiations, I hear leaders from the business community stepping up and saying, hey, we, we are taking real action here. They can demonstrate that they're doing things that go well beyond sort of a greenwashing kind of thing. I feel like that's starting to have an impact. Um, and I feel like politicians are starting to realize hmm, we can't depend on the fact that the private sector is going to always be resistant to climate action. In fact, uh, we may have real advantages to getting on board with this emergent community that really wants climate action to happen. Yeah, thank you for that. I'm really relieved, Jason, to hear you say that because, you know, I, I just finished reading The Shock Doctrine. <laughs> And when you come out of a book like that, where it's, you know, it basically talks about how so often we've moved into a place after a natural disaster in order to be able to privatize and take over that the resources of that place. It's nice to hear that from the inside, you're seeing change of those three groups. Do you feel like the one that's most motivated by uh, monetary profits is moving the fastest in the direction of support for climate change mitigation? Or do you notice or is it it's too hard to tell? It's a little hard to tell. Uh, I've been recently approached by some businesses here in Chicago saying, you know, we'd really like to start figuring out how we can have an impact, how we can change the discourse and the public narrative about climate change and articulate the fact that there are businesses right here locally that really want change to happen. And they, they think that they're going to be advantaged by policies that will help us reduce our emissions. So that's a really new development, at least for here in Chicago. I think it's, it's also happening elsewhere. The other segment, uh, which I described as you know, having insurance companies, for example, um, they've been aware of the issue and sort of saying things about it for a long time. Uh, but the action doesn't seem to really follow through with their stated level of concern. So I think it's remains to be seen who's going to, you know, have the most impact. But um, the more companies kind of get on board with this idea, it's going to start to make change in the policy sphere as well. And I'm sorry, what do you mean by insurance? Like what, com what, what group is that? Um, I mean, companies that provide homeowners insurance, car insurance. Oh, uh, literally insurance. Oh, I see. Yeah. Um, oh, I thought you meant metaphorically. <laughs> there, and there are these big, uh, the reinsurance companies who provide insurance for the insurance companies, they are the ones who most stand to be affected by this, I think. And uh, they move a lot of money or control a lot of money. Uh, and so they've been aware of the issue for a while and they've been speaking up about it. But uh, it doesn't seem to have had an impact very far. Hmm. Okay. So what, what is your greatest wish for the positive outcome of the climate summit? My greatest wish? Uh, it creates a whole bunch of different new pieces or puts together existing pieces in new ways. And so my biggest wish is just to dig into that and make sure that we can make it work over the next few years. It's really supposed to come into effect by 2020. Um, and at that point, we need to make sure that these things have been sorted out, put together in a way, um, and maybe road tested a little bit to make sure that uh, we're really going to make serious progress over the decade from 2020 to 2030. That's really essential from the climate perspective, from sort of the Earth's perspective, that we need that progress over that decade. Uh, and if this agreement is going to have the impact we all hope for, uh, then we really need to make sure that the work over the next few years sets it up so it can be effective. And UCS will probably play a big role in that. Yeah, we've been playing a role in those uh, negotiations for quite some time. And UCS is primarily a domestic-focused organization, so much of our advocacy is directed toward the U.S. The next four years are going to be really critical for determining what the U.S. does on climate change. Uh, so I think we will continue to be pushing, um, and I think that what the U.S. does has major, major ripple effects on the rest of the world. You know, we're aiming to have a global benefit uh, and primarily driven through uh, what we can accomplish to in the U.S. Why are the next four years the most important? Like I said, it, the agreement is really going to come into effect in 2020. So uh, all the countries are going back to their capitals uh, and saying, okay, how do we implement this? Um, each country has put together uh, a set of contributions that they uh, think they can make 
over that decade from 2020 to 2030. That was put together somewhat hastily, I think, uh, over the course of about a year uh, for each country. Uh, and I think they need to go back and really check on that and make sure that it's possible to do what they've said they're going to do. Each of those national contributions was pretty conservative, though. I think they put things on paper that they were pretty confident they could guarantee would be delivered. Uh, so I think between now and 2020, we have the chance to increase the ambition of all those contributions. Uh, we know that what's on the table now would get us to maybe a three-degree uh, warming world, and we need to do much better than that if we're going to safeguard the future. Uh, we're trying to avoid uh, two degrees of warming and keep it below one and a half degrees of warming if possible. There was a rumor floating around yesterday uh, on social media that I noticed a few friends were posting that said we had a day where we were over three degrees for the first time in history. It, I don't I don't know if you saw that or if that's true. I mean, it wasn't from like peer-reviewed sources, so I, I didn't click on the links, but... It was two degrees, but it was, yeah, globally... Uh, I don't think it was just a day. I think it was an accumulation of recent satellite data uh, that showed that the whole Earth was two degrees warmer for a while. I haven't gone and looked at that specific study or dug into those reports, and we won't get the official numbers for a little while longer, probably not for another week or so. But yeah, that was quite disturbing. It showed that, okay, we're actually uh, touching on some of these thresholds that we said we're never going to cross. Um, and so, yeah, coming out of Paris feeling like, oh, we've done great work here, we can turn our attention to other issues, that's not really the case. Uh, the Earth is telling us, no, you need to step up your efforts because um, there's, more, <laughs> there's more going on here than you're aware of, and the, the policy is lagging far behind what the climate system is, is telling us. So do you feel like scientists have made projections over the years and now they're, they're getting exponentially ramped up? just continually? So like each year, do you feel like it, it gets exponentially faster than what they were originally charting? Are you referring to the, the pace of warming? Uh, yeah. Um, I don't think so. I think uh, our, our estimates are getting more accurate. So uh, every estimate kind of keeps confirming what was done in the past. Like we actually have a pretty good handle on the climate system for the most part. Uh, but in the past, we had a much wider range of uncertainty. So we couldn't really tell where we were headed very specifically, uh, but we knew that the danger if we kept on a particular path was going to be high. Um, now I think we were able to tell much more precisely um, how much warming is happening, how sensitive the climate system is, uh, how the Earth system itself is responding to the warming that's already happening. Um, and there have been a few surprises along the way, um, but they're not major ones, they're relatively minor. and. I think that gives us a lot of confidence that, okay, um, the science has been accurate all along. Uh, we're getting a sharper and sharper view uh, as we zoom in more closely on these particular issues. Uh, and so I think the science is just telling us that, yes, we need to keep taking action uh, and then we can have confidence in what it has been telling us all along. One of my last guests was a uh, scholar with the Norman Lear Center, and she looks at statistics that can influence TV and media in terms of uh, the audience taking action. Do you notice any approaches? I, I loved how clear you are in your blogs and your writing for UCS. Um, do you notice any approaches that seem to stagnate the response of the general populace or that seem to motivate the response of the general populace in terms of how you frame the climate dialogue. So in other words, you know, a lot of us aren't scientists and we're basically just trusting scientists to, to tell us the general, you know, theme. But, you know, the average person's eyes can kind of gloss over with all the nuts and bolts. Are there ways to frame the story in your experience that can encourage someone to understand it better and to take action about it in their own individual lives? So I try to relate things to local experiences or my own experience uh, in a very tangible way whenever I can. And so I tell stories about places that I care about, that I've visited or, or lived in, and how they are being affected now and how they're projected to be affected in the future and sort of get people to, to grapple with, like, what does that mean for where I live? What, what does that mean for the places and the people that I care about? Uh, and I think that really is a way to get people's attention and, and to get them to think, oh, this isn't just some abstract thing. This is really something that's relevant to me. 
And it's not necessarily something that's far off in the future, but it's happening right now. It's going to affect my kids and my grandkids, uh, and I don't want them to be negatively impacted. That's how I try to, you know, bring this down to a level that uh, the non-experts uh, can engage in and the everyday person who's on the street can understand what the implications are for climate change for their own lives. In terms of what I think stagnates or um, kind of creates ineffectual responses, I see that there are kind of a couple different approaches that uh, academics take toward this problem. Uh, one of them is sort of put the responsibility on the individual. Um, go do whatever you can, like give up your car, uh, reduce your carbon footprint, um, do all those things. And if everybody does that, that's going to be the solution. And I think there's a lot that can be done there, but that on its own is not going to be enough. Um, so if we tell people that that on its own is going to solve the problem, I think we're setting them up for failure, and I don't think that's that's right. The other part piece of this solution is that people need to be active at uh, in, in selecting uh, their representatives in the political sphere uh, who can make the kinds of changes that they want. Um, and I think that's the place where most everyday people feel like they don't have a lot of power, uh, that they don't have a lot of influence, partly because of what you were talking about earlier. Um, corporations exert a lot of influence, vested in interests, but a lot of influence on uh, policymaking. So uh, it, to me, that means it's more important than ever that people step up their efforts uh, and, and that they're very specific efforts. Um, people need to be pushing for policies about the way we build our infrastructure, about the way we organize our cities and communities, uh, about the way we produce our food, uh, about the way we travel, like more or less every component of, of our lives. Um, and it's not just sort of what we can do on our an individual level ourselves, but they need to be advocating for changes that are forward-looking in all of those dimensions and um, how they're affected by policy. So that's the component that I think is often the most difficult to get people to engage in, um, but it's one that's critically important if we're going to actually solve the problems or uh, insulate ourselves from the worst of the impacts. Beautifully said, and it's it's the one part that I don't hear a lot of people talking about, to be honest. Yeah, that's. Um, I don't want to take anything away from individual efforts because we in our own household, you know, we're, we're pretty vigilant about trying to do what we can on that front. Uh, but we have to recognize in our home, and I think lots of other people do too, that, that that's not going to be enough. Uh, we really need to have people making policies, um, and this goes right from our own towns and local communities all the way up to the national level and then the international community that we've been talking about already. So there's many layers to it, but uh, that just means more opportunities for engagement, I think. Which is interesting timing because there's so much press about how disengaged people feel thanks to the onslaught of, you know, the internet and social media, how we have like access to more people than ever, but we, you know, we're, we're often like stuck at home in front of our computer talking to people that we could just be seeing in a coffee shop. And so our communities have like, they've simultaneously widened and shrunk in a lot of circumstances. Yeah, I mean, I think these are really interesting times in that regard. Uh, and I'm old enough to have seen a lot of the evolution of uh, the ways we interact using social media, using uh, all types of, let's just call it, you know, electronics or uh, modern communications. Uh, I remember getting my first email address when I went to college um, in 93, and it was like, wow, okay. What was it? What was it? <laughs> and it was like the university email, um, and I think my number was like 27 or something, you know? that was. Oh, you got to like pick your favorite number? <laughs> <laughs> that was before we all knew we should put our names in email uh, <laughs> titles so that people could remember it easily. <laughs> I think a lot of the advocacy space has been a little bit blindsided by these types of changes and the things that used to work in terms of campaigning or motivating people and getting them engaged. They're not working as well anymore, but yet there's this whole new space where people are interacting. Uh, and I think it's been difficult for the advocacy world to understand how to effectively utilize that. I spend a fair bit of my time you know, using social media uh, interacting with folks and sharing things that come up, some of which is work-related, but but not always, of course. And so I think it's 
in an evolving space, it's rapidly evolving, and nobody knows exactly where it's going to go or how we can use it. So speaking of communities, there's this idea that I've read about that, you know, major cities like L.A. or New York or Chicago, where you live, are better able to adapt to these climate changes, you know, because of being able to have money to throw at it or to have hazard mitigation plans in place. Do you think that bigger cities are safer or do you think that they're less safe in terms of um, loss of life in upcoming years with climate change? Man, that's a great question. It's a huge question. Uh, and I've only moved to, to Chicago relatively recently, but uh, coming here and finding that we can't pass a state budget, that we're letting the schools sort of run along with uh, that they're having to shut down because we don't have money for them, that, that makes me think that maybe it's less safe in the big cities. But it's hard to judge right now. Uh, in, a, in a lot of ways, there's infrastructure in cities that helps to support uh, vulnerable people um, children and old people, especially, I can I think um, there's you know robust uh, medical infrastructure. Um, there's good transportation infrastructure, but when you look um, outside the big cities in rural areas, I think people are more used to being uh, self-sufficient and resilient, um, and so there are advantages there too. I mean, I don't sort of have like a, a doomsday prepper mentality about this. Um, I think that the consequences of climate change are going to come to us um, in ways that are really sort of inconvenient and painful, uh, but they're not necessarily going to tear apart the U.S. Uh, society as we know it, for example. I think there will be, I mean, the things that keep me kind of worried, um, one of them is around food security, uh, because you have climate change affecting the means of food production. Uh, the means of transportation of food from places where it's grown to the people who want to eat it. Uh, and then you have, it, it can affect um, our sort of means to access the food with our ability to purchase it. So what I'm talking about is in the past, where you had a serious shortfall in a particular crop, um, that meant that the price went so high globally that people just couldn't afford to buy it. Uh, this has happened with corn. There were the infamous tortilla riots in Mexico where um, the price of corn was so high, driven by events and circumstances totally outside of the control of Mexico, that people just couldn't afford to buy it. I think those kinds of things could become much more common in the future. Um, and that's just the price effect it's, and the production effects. You know, we may be living in a world where we find that um, we can't afford a lot of the kinds of food that we're used to eating, uh, and I don't really know what that means for people's ability to keep thriving and um, doing what they do. Obviously, in the U.S., um, we tend to have a problem of uh, a different type of malnutrition uh, that leads to obesity and other health problems. Um, so it's not exactly a problem of getting enough food, but it's sort of getting the right kind of food. But I think in the rest of the world, malnutrition from a lack of calories and, and the right kinds of nutrition is a serious problem in many places. Uh, and if we see that those are causing food shortages or famines, uh, then I think you have the kinds of disruptions that are possible from mass migrations, from serious humanitarian crises, uh, and, and we would all be affected by those things, even if they're happening in distant places. So in terms of the way you frame things, thinking about communities pushing for policy rather than just individual actions, is the solution for that to kind of push against the the corn and soy and those type of subsidies and like big farm and then actually try to push for permaculture principles, for local, for organic? Is that where we should focus to help with that fear of food systems that you have? I mean, yes, I think being on a path of balancing the subsidies that we have in the food system uh, would really be helpful. And I think doing that in a way that's conscious of climate change and uh, looks at the expectations that we have for the future climate in a really serious way, that's something that needs to be done. Uh, I think there's a lot of evidence that those alternative models that you describe, permaculture, organic farming, etc., those are all quite a bit more resilient to the kinds of changes we expect uh, in the future climate. I think those, those models are going to do better in the future, um, and especially we will shift to those models more quickly if we stop subsidizing kind of the current system and we start uh, putting more momentum behind those kinds of systems. 
right now we have the advantage um, in what I guess we could call mainstream agriculture um, that it's really benefited from economies of scale. It's really oriented towards the type of transportation infrastructure we have here in this country and around the world. We need to figure out how to get those alternative models to also have the same kinds of advantages um, that we see in what, we, what I call the mainstream model. Mm. Okay. So you said that you're not, you're not a doomsday theorist. It's going to be in, inconvenient and that you're, you're worried about food security. So does your work help with natural disaster mitigation and adaptation? And is that another one of your big fears with climate change? Yeah, it does. Uh, I try to do work that's relevant to those issues. Partly it's just raising awareness that these things will become more common in the future where we you know, ignore what's happening. Uh, and also that we can avoid a lot of these negative impacts if we do take action now. Um, some of the things that I've been working on are related to uh, impacts on forests from things like wildfires, from insect outbreaks, from increased severity of droughts. Uh, and all of those things are, I mean, they've been around for, for as long as there have been forests almost. Uh, and they've been having those impacts, but under climate change, they're just accelerating and um, they're reaching new thresholds that we've never seen before. So that was kind of something that people were saying, well, we've already had fires. What do we do about it? Um, why is the future any different than the past? Well, it is going to be quite different and we need to be preparing for that. Uh, we need to be ramping up our ability to respond to those types of impacts uh, so that we're not caught off guard and we don't see, you know, Communities lost, houses lost, lives lost in the future. We can we can avoid that outcome if we prepare now by by understanding what's what's going to happen. Were you working for uh, UCS when Hurricane Katrina happened? No, not at the time. Oh, okay. Uh, I was just curious. But I was working in this space when uh, the Deepwater Horizon disaster happened in the Gulf, and I was working doing some work in Louisiana on coastal resilience, uh, and we were trying to understand and, and then advocate for the types of changes in um, the management of wetlands, coastal wetlands, and ecosystems along the Louisiana coast that could help buffer those communities and those coastlines against the increasing frequency of hurricanes. Um, and also just stop the, the land loss that had been happening for decades as a result of some mismanagement uh, of the resources that were already there, namely the Mississippi River. Deepwater Horizon sort of really focused the national spotlight on what was happening uh, in the Gulf. Uh, and then as a result of that, um, the damages from the spill were immediate and uh, severe to the very coast that we've been talking about protecting. Um, but what came along with that then was um, Louisiana had in place a plan for coastal restoration. and the monies that they will receive uh, as compensation for the spill will be funneled directly into uh, enacting that, that restoration plan. So the fact that they already had a plan in place and they knew what to do with that money, uh, I think will be hopefully uh, something that can accelerate the restoration of the coast. Uh, and that's going to go beyond just repairing the damage or trying to deal with the damage from the spill but it will also hopefully make that whole coastline more resilient to other kinds of damages as well. That includes sea level rise, hurricanes, um, various other things. That's fantastic. And we actually just crossed paths there because I was arranging all the interviews for a documentary called The Big Fix, which was about the BP oil spill. And, you know, the problem I face in media is that so often when you're even with documentaries, definitely with features and TV, you're always looking for the, the um, conflict angle. And so, so rarely do we follow up with like the positive results that came out of it. You know, so in that example, with that documentary, they were looking at the Corexit and how the Corexit was used and then what ended up happening and whistleblowers. But it's good to hear that, you know, that there is some resilience in that area. Well, I hope it plays out that way. It's, uh, <laughs> you know, the story's never perfect and the outcomes are, are rarely everything we could hope for. 
but sometimes um, there's a silver lining or, you know, there's a way to make some lemonade out of the lemons that you're handed. Hmm. Hopefully that's one of those cases. I always ask everyone I interview about this because I do think about this quite a lot. And, and I notice that a lot of friends in cities are starting to talk about this more and more. You know, we were all banking on Alaska or Portland <laughs> or Canada uh, to move to when, you know, if, if things do destabilize, um, across the United States. And then, you know, the Cascadian Rift article came out in the New Yorker, which was so well written that it, it struck fear in the hearts of everybody who read it, you know? And so then, you know, I know you're not a doomsday theorist, but have you studied the science on places that are going to be less impacted by, Natural disasters, by wildfires, by droughts, that will have access to fresh water, you know, basically all the things we need to have sustainable communities. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think I would encourage people to try to pick up everything and move to somewhere where they're going to be safer, because I don't think any place is going to be particularly safer. There's always going to be some kind of impact or whatever. And I tend to think that. Uh, just understanding where you live and figuring out how to be more resilient where you are is maybe a safer strategy. And this is kind of a, a strategy that humankind has pursued for a long time, is that becoming familiar with a place and learning how to live there sustainably is much more effective than trying to migrate to some new place um, and try to learn from scratch what it takes to, to make a go of it there. So I think in every part of the, the, the U.S. and in in most of the world, uh, it's possible to find ways to do really well where you are, even facing a changed climate. Um, and there are also ways that we can all take action to reduce those impacts and ensure that we end up on a, on a better climate path in the future. And it's probably likely that you know more about how to do that right where you live uh, than you would know um, by moving to some new place. In my house, we try to take a lot of action to uh, organize our lives uh, in the, the particular place we live so that we can have little impact, so that we can be um, taking, act, you know, accessing and using uh, the resources that are around that we think are, are moving in the right direction. So we use public transportation all the time. Um, we try to buy organic food and we try to uh, work with local CSAs and things like that um, to really just live well and sustainably right where we are. So I guess that's that would be my response to that question. Um, one of the safest places is probably right where you are. And if you can figure out what people have learned around you about how to live sustainably uh, in a low-impact life, then I think you're going to be much better off. And you'll also have the uh, resiliency of the community around you, which will know you better than if you just pick up and move somewhere. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think there's a lot to be said for uh, the social network that you live in and uh, working with like-minded people to make those kinds of changes in your community that, you know, are going to put you in a much better place in the future. So I think that's, um, that's one of the reasons why, you know, staying where you are and working with friends and neighbors uh, can help motivate that type of collective action that I think is going to have the real impact. Mm. And what what type of uh, things are going to be affecting Chicago in upcoming years? Well, for Chicago, I think in the whole Great Lakes region, everybody's going to be paying attention to the impacts that might happen on the lakes. And that's a little bit uncertain scientifically. Um, we're not certain that um, sort of the amount of water coming to the lakes is going to remain consistent. It might be fluctuating from year to year. Uh, and for some like Lake Erie, which happens to be particularly shallow, that could have some, some impacts. Uh, we've already seen in the past couple of years where there were algal blooms that um, basically caused the water to be unusable for local drinking water in towns like Toledo. If something like that, it's less likely in, in Lake Michigan, but um, those kinds of impacts are things we need to be watching. Also, Chicago is you know a hub of uh, transporting agricultural goods, uh, and so... Um, the agriculture of the entire Midwest region uh, is something that is worth looking at closely and beginning to think about what are the impacts here. Some of that will come from higher temperatures and possibly uh, extremes of precipitation. We might see flooding one year and drought the next, and so it's difficult to prepare for those kinds of things. Um, there are also, for most of the crops grown here, and, and now it's just a handful of crops instead of 
dozens of crops that used to be grown uh, in the Midwest. There are thresholds that if they cross them, uh, the productivity declines steeply. Um, so those kinds of things could happen in the hot summers here of the future, um, and that would mean we just wouldn't be able to grow those crops here very effectively. So those are, those are concerns about the region here in the city. Um, it's a pretty beautiful city, and it's a nice place to live, so hopefully we can avoid those, those consequences uh, and also get um, some of our finances in the state and in the city better in line to, to allow people to live more fulfilled lives here. I, I love Chicago, and it sounds like you're summarizing by saying we're going to have to be flexible. Flexible and, and forward-looking and uh, really jump on these issues and not kind of wait around for them to bite us. I think that's that's maybe the main takeaway. Mm. I read this book a while ago, a few years ago, called Deep Survival. I don't remember the author, but um, it was it was looking at all these people who survived these really intense situations like plane crashes and environmental disasters. And the group that continually survives more than any other age range is children up till the age of I think it was either seven or nine. And the reason being is because they're really flexible. They'll kind of go along with whatever is happening. They don't have like a set model in their head of how something should be. So if they're like suddenly in a forest and they're lost, they'll go with it. They'll understand that they can, they can adapt to the circumstance. Yeah. I think I read that same book recently. (laughs) Great. (laughs) You know, I was pretty surprised by that uh, finding as well. Uh, and yeah, I, I sort of like where you're going. That this, what we need to have is a bit of uh, a beginner's mind, or to be really open and flexible to um, all the options out there, uh, and follow. Follow. I mean, the the children. I think uh, the book, if I remember correctly, you know, it said that they were just listening to their own instincts. They were responding to what they were feeling. Um, if they were cold, they tried to find a place where they could get warm. Uh, if they were lost, they tried to sit down and think through and figure out what, what they needed to do. Um, and when we're older and we're more set in our ways, we tend to think like, well, there's something I'm supposed to do, or uh, I'm not going to listen to my surroundings. I'm just going to listen to what I think the right behavior is uh, from what I've been taught. So maybe, yeah, it is a chance to kind of be more open-minded, and um, those kinds of instincts might serve us well. We definitely need to listen to what what our surroundings are telling us. Thank you so much, Jason. I've really felt inspired talking to you. And would you mind telling our listeners what the best website is for Union of Concerned Scientists? Yeah, it's um, www.ucsusa.com. And they can see the blogs that you've written and articles and whatnot on there. Yeah, it's very easily searchable. They can find me and they can find a lot of other great work and a lot of really good commentary by my colleagues about a whole host of issues. Uh, But we're all paying attention to these things every day and um, trying to make progress and, and get people interested in the solutions. So hopefully we're being successful. Thank you as always for listening. Please remember to like, comment, and subscribe and tell your friends. We love company.